Welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we had a nice break, or at least it was nice to take a week off and just do family things, Thanksgiving things. But it does mean that when you come back from a holiday, we've seen this before, we're all back, but the polls are not necessarily back. So I feel kind of rested. I don't know if you feel rested. And pollsters everywhere apparently seem rested because it's harder to get brand new, fresh polling a couple days right after Thanksgiving. Yeah, I feel badly for any pollsters who really like jumped into the field right away that Monday afterwards. <laughs> because if you went into the field the Monday after Thanksgiving, your poll changed on Tuesday, which we will yes. talk about when we get... If it was a primary poll, not if it was if it something was a primary else, it was poll, probably fine. Um, you, you may have had to switch some things up. Uh, so today on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about the Democratic field shrinking. Um, we're going to talk about some impeachment polling and some really interesting cross tabs when people are asked, do you believe Ukraine interfered? in the 2016 elections. Um, There's some polling on whether people think that Trump, Lincoln, or Reagan was the better president. Uh, This is a very complicated question, depending on what crosstab you're looking at. So buckle up for some of these findings. Uh, Britons are going to the polls. Great Britain will be voting in their election coming up next week. And so we will look at some new uh, Mr. P analysis of what's going on and is Boris Johnson going to have a good night. And we'll wrap up with a little bit of holiday polling, specifically focusing in on Giving Tuesday, which was this week. What are people's preferences when it comes to charitable giving? Great. So first, we have some changes in the primary field. Um First, of course, folks who've been listening to the show for a while know that uh, I was part of Governor Bullock's polling team, and he dropped out of the race on Monday, um, along with others who we'll talk about in a minute who dropped out of the race. Um, And if you saw my posts, if you saw the posts of other folks on his team, if you saw the posts of other candidates and folks in the press and Democrats, Republicans, people all over the map, you saw a common theme emerge, which is he is such an incredibly nice guy, a thoughtful, smart guy who was great to his team, was great to people that he met, continues to be great to his team and folks that he meets. And it's just a genuinely nice kind person who is, you know, what you want. Not everybody is behind closed doors, a nice person the way that they, you know, are, are outside, you know, in their kind of forward facing um, uh, way that they appear. But Governor Bullock is. And so you saw that really come crystal clear from everybody on his team. And I'm just really excited that I got to be a part of it. That's wonderful. And I, I know there are lots of times where I've had friends go work on campaigns. And there are some folks who seem maybe maybe they don't seem as friendly or personable but then you talk to the folks that have worked for them and like they will they sing their praises like i've anybody i know who's ever worked for so on the republican side all my friends who have ever worked for rick scott in florida i know he maybe uh his his public persona does not seem like warm and cuddly cuddly but everyone i know who has worked for him even the most like cynical politicos, hardened operative types, like they just 
they think the world of this guy. But then there are other folks who their public persona, and I will not spill the tea today, but who are, you know, they have a perhaps friendlier or nicer public persona. Um, but I do not hear glowing things from right. my friends who have worked for them. So it really says a lot when people are like, yeah, I worked for this person. And even though it didn't wind up working out, I, I, I think they're, they're wonderful. Yes. Yes. So um, so that happened Monday. You had Joe Sestak get, uh, get out of the race, too, on Monday. And then Kamala Harris. Uh, we're recording. It's Wednesday today. Yes. So Kamala Harris dropped out yesterday. Um, so that those are all really big changes in the Democratic field. And so there have been some public polls, but I don't think we have anything super brand new. We have some aggregates and then we can talk a little bit about what it might mean for California, which I think is one of the really big, you know, big question marks of what happens next. Um, so if you look at Morning Consult, they do tracking and I don't think we've included this before, but uh, they have it, their national tracking and then they also have early state uh, tracking and their overall national shows uh, Biden at 29% and, and Sanders and then Warren, and then Mayor Pete in uh, single digits. If you look at the early states, the the it's a little bit different. Mayor Pete's in third. Uh, you have Biden, and then Sanders, Mayor Pete, and then and then Warren. If you're looking at the early primary states, and then Tom Steyer coming in fifth. Uh, Michael Bloomberg comes in fifth in the overall. And so those, you know, who comes in fifth may be a function of name ID and also you know who's. Who's spending money on television? Tom Steyer has been up on the air for a while. Bloomberg obviously just got into the race and just started to do a national buy that is, to my understanding, not not focused on the early primary state. So that may reflect there. Um, and the other thing that, you know, I think as we're thinking about what comes next is we're in this new stage of the primary is not just looking at the head-to-heads. I know we warn, we're like broken records on that. We talk about that. But um, but looking at the favorables and not just the percent favorable, but the percent unfavorable and the, and the don't know, not sure percent as well. So Morning Consult has that. There's some other, I think, YouGov in their recent poll will have, um, you know, favorability for everybody in the field. I, I don't think every poll asks favorability for every single candidate or, or for, you know, a dozen or so candidates the way some of these outlets do. Um, but it's worth looking at not just favorable, because that'll give you a different ranking, but that favorable versus unfavorable and, and how well known these folks are. So, um, you know, if you look at, for example, um, you know, Michael Bloomberg's favorable versus unfavorable, he's better known than some of the other candidates, but his unfavorables are a little bit higher. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, Michael Bennett has very low unfavorables, but he has, a, he has low favorables as well. He's got a larger don't know uh, percentage there. So you could see some of these different trends throughout. If you look at the ratio of favorable to unfavorable and how well known these folks are. So one of the things that I think is pretty interesting is, you know, you've got some of these polls, again, that that are finally getting Bloomberg in the mix. If you were out and about over Thanksgiving and you turned on the TV at all, you probably saw Mike Bloomberg ads. They are blanketing the country. Um, And, you know, I think watching his numbers to see, does he wind up in Tom Steyerville? Does he wind up going above and beyond? I mean, he's airing ads in places that Tom Steyer is not. Tom Steyer is much more focused in some of these early primary states where Bloomberg is like blanketing the country. He's everywhere. Um, Seeing if that actually does move things. The other thing that I think is interesting is YouGov did a poll 
with The Economist where they asked not just who are you voting for, but then who are you considering? It was a you can choose all of the above sort of question. And on this one, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden are, you know, I I don't want to say neck and neck because who are you considering is not the same as the ballot test. But, you know, are up there together at the top. Elizabeth Warren, 49 percent. Joe Biden, 48 percent. Bernie Sanders, 42 percent. But when you ask for, like, who are people's second choice, if you click through on the poll, uh, you know, Biden's very he's he's the top of their ballot test at 23 percent. Um, and then when you ask who is people's second choice, you know, these numbers all really fall off. It's, it, you know, there's a lot of folks that say, look, I just don't have a second choice. Um, and someone I saw on Twitter, who I do not have the tweet in front of me right now, so I cannot give proper attribution, but analyzed, you know, of the folks who are running, how many people, uh, you know, how many Biden voters also go, yeah, well, you know, I've got a bunch of other people that I'm interested in or what have you. And really found that, like, Biden has a pretty strong core of people who are not really considering anyone else. So I'm going to keep watching to see, does Bloomberg sort of, you know, horn in on any of that turf um, as he begins to raise his visibility? But, you know, Biden has been very resilient, uh, not necessarily in Iowa, and we'll, we'll talk about the early states in a moment, but nationally, he's been very resilient, um, even, you know, through ups and downs and twists and turns and such. And so it may be that his his voters are just like, look, I've got my guy. Like, you can keep throwing all sorts of malarkey haha, at me. And I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that's not a surprise that the the race is not as fluid as folks wanting to watch twists and turns, you know, might expect or hope it can be. Because if you go back to the looking at the favorability and, and hard ID or how, well, you know, what percentage of folks know these candidates, the primary voters know these candidates well enough to have an impression. I mean, there are quite a few of them that are, you know, around half or a little bit more than half or a little bit under half, know them well enough to have some sort of impression. I mean, it's uh, that people are are still getting to learn about these candidates. Now, when you do internal candidate polling um, and you have a multi-candidate field, you would often ask, okay, who would your second choice be? And then if that person you know, is out of the race or you would do a recalculation to say, okay, well, without this person, here's what the horse race would be. So let's say you have five candidates and you would ask about second choice and then you say, okay, well, without this person, I've re- recalculated what the vote would be and it would be this, you know, in this four-way race. And without this person, the four-way race would be such and such, right? So that's a thing you can do. We haven't really seen a lot of public polls do that kind of exercise the way one might do it in an internal exercise. But you did see something in, and the reason I, I bring it up is because lots of people are asking the question, well, what does this, you know, what does it mean for different candidates? Who benefits with Harris dropping out? And in California where, you know, they're, she would have had a clear strength and it's a, there are a lot of votes on the table, a lot of delegates on the table. That's now, you know, something that people are going to be really turning to. And it's a Super Tuesday state. And so there was a poll in the L.A. Times uh, conducted by the Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies uh, for the Times. And so they asked um, they asked what they thought about Harris dropping the quitting the race. Should she uh, quit the race? And a majority of Democratic primary voters thought that she should. Um, And then they asked, who would your second choice be of the people who were her supporters? Um, And those folks you know, typically about a third of them went to Biden and about a quarter chose Warren. 
Um, and then after that, uh, about 14% said, uh, said each of Sanders and Buttigieg. That's just in California. There is one number that to me, so looking through, you know, this like, okay, who's your second choice? Who's your first choice? There's also a question where YouGov asks, who would you be disappointed if any of these people became the Democratic nominee? There are a quarter of Democrats who say, I don't care. Like, none of these people are going to disappoint me. Pick, pick who you want. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, Marianne Williamson come in top of the list of, you know, sort of ones the most Democratic voters go, ah, oh, no, thank you. Uh, Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer come in uh, f- third and fourth. Joe Biden comes in fifth on that list. Only 23% of Democratic voters say they would be disappointed if he was the nominee. So you can look at that glass half full or glass half empty. What is mind-blowing to me or maybe I guess it's not mind-blowing, it actually supports exactly what I wrote in my column this week for The Examiner, is if you look at the age crosstabs on this question. So, you know, would you be disappointed if this person becomes the nominee um, by age? So for Democrats under the age of 30, 43% say they would be disappointed if Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee. For all other age groups, it's 23% or less. But for young Democrats, 43% just seems like such a high number um, who say they will be disappointed if he is the nominee. So this is like he's with this whole no malarkey bus tour. I actually think it's a savvy strategy for the primary because he is leaning hard into the, hey, old Democrats vote for me. And the primary audience in the Democratic Party, even though we think, oh, it's, you know, Democrats do quite well with young voters, et cetera. There's a lot of young progressive energy in the party. When you look at who actually shows up to vote in primary elections, a huge portion of it is still over the age of 50. So I think Biden is being savvy by being like Mr. No Malarkey in that sense for the primary. But if you wind up having a depressed young progressive base, who I think will still nonetheless be motivated. To, you know, this is this is the question Margie and I talked about. This she's coming on my radio show this weekend, um, but we sort of discussed. You know, would, would Democrats vote for uh, what was the was it the the bag of potato chips? Bag of chips. Bag of yes. bag of potato chips. Like as long as it's not Donald Trump and it's sentient and it has a D after its name, like people will vote for it. Um, but man, is are those numbers surprising for Biden with young voters? You know, just not to digress too much, but it's, I mean, if this was a thing that I did, you could do like a Vine or a little video or whatever of different people with their kind of joke, insert the blank, you know, thing that people would say. Like, I've heard people say, like, I'd vote for a, you know, wet dog or, you know, bag of trash or whatever they call it. Like, insert thing here that people want to, you know, make sure it's clear they they would vote for this inanimate, gross object, you know. (laughs) Um, I guess wet dogs are not inanimate or gross. Nonetheless, not constitutionally qualified to be president, but that's, you know, that just, just demonstrates democratic enthusiasm. There's like a meme of what's the thing you would say you would vote for, you know, in, if that thing was running against Trump, whether it's bag of potato chips or what have you. So uh, any other thoughts on the national primary? Because there's some interesting stuff happening in the states, too. I mean, nationally, Biden does remain in the, the, the front runner position on average, 27.8 percent. Uh, as of Wednesday, um, the, the most recent polls in this mix, we have that one economist YouGov poll, we have a Hill-Harris X poll, and we have Politico Morning Consult. Um, 
you know, you have Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg all in kind of the low to mid-teens. Then you have a pretty pretty big drop-off. Bloomberg pops in there in that fourth slot at four points. Uh, Harris now has dropped out of the race, but at 3.4, Yang at 2.6, and so on and so forth. Um, but in Iowa, the picture looks very different. And here, the rise of Mayor Pete is is clear. This is not just clear. one outlier mm-hmm. poll. This is not just one random hoe. That's kind of weird and interesting. This is it is real and it is happening. Margie, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is continues to reflect his, you know, his operation in the state as well as being on television. Um, and, you know, also as a reminder that early voting and the voting that happens in the first couple states will then scramble what happens elsewhere or it could scramble what help happens elsewhere because folks in some of the other states are getting their information not because people are knocking on their door or dragging them to an event or what have you but because they're you know they hear about it on the news and so the news coverage changes after some of the early voting states that may have an effect on what happens nationally um the, the way the early the early states may end up you know changing what we see in some of the later states. Um, But we haven't had anything since Thanksgiving in Iowa. So we'll see what happens in the next couple weeks. There's a new, the most recent New Hampshire poll was right before the holiday. I don't, so I guess we didn't talk about it um, last week. And that had Sanders up single digits as did the Boston Globe Suffolk poll that came out also again in that, that part of late November. Um, And the race is, you know, quite close between the top four candidates there and again with you know Sanders and Warren having a regional tie and we'll see how some of these things change now that you're going to have you know a more concentrated conversation on television in both those states in addition to what happens on the ground in Iowa New Hampshire which is people get engaged in person to go meet these candidates and you know talk to people who are part of the campaigns go to events and so on. Yeah, I I think it this is I think the big question for me is we know the history of Iowa being over the last two and a half decades of Iowa being predictive of who will win the Democratic nomination. You win Iowa, you win the whole shebang. Um that, you know, if Mayor Pete wins this, yeah, he's still, you know, kind of down in the muck in the national polls. You know, Biden is still that that front runner. Buttigieg still winds up in so, you know, you you continue to see these polls where you look at the cross tabs and among African American voters, Buttigieg has zero. Like not a single African American person who took the poll said that they would vote for Buttigieg. He would have to turn that around, but if you win if you win Iowa and you swing into New Hampshire with tons of momentum, I mean, how, can does this stuff all change real quickly if if he can do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, we don't know. You know, we'll see. And then the question is Super Tuesday, right? And Super Tuesday, you have an, a large number of states. I mean, it's really going to be, you know, it, it's it's going to be very decisive. And I think I saw something that showed that for both Democrats and Republicans, the Super Tuesday winner in in every contest, but one over the last, you know. 18 or so different contests, the winner of Super Tuesday was the nominee. So what happens in Super Tuesday where you have, you know, really big states with lots of expensive markets all competing for voters simultaneously, what happens then? So that's going to have, an, you know, give candidates who have a either are well-funded or have a national profile where folks know who they are, um, you know, that, that's going to give those candidates an advantage. Yeah, this to me is just the like I, i'm 
even as a as a Republican who has no, you know, stake in this game or whatever, I just watching Mayor Pete rise. I just I continue to have this like I want to put my cards on the table for all of our listeners that I feel a sense of like I was listening to that band before they were famous. (laughs) (laughs) I was writing articles about him in Swedish magazines three years ago, and now he might win (laughs) Iowa for the Democrats. Holy moly. So. Um, anyhow, I just, this is, this to me, watching his rise, I mean, there has been, there have been so many other polls like Trump's job approval or even kind of the national Democratic primary picture compared to things like, I don't know, the Republican primary in 2012, which was, I mean, gosh, go look at that chart. It's, it's bananas. Like everybody's got their moment at the top and it's wild and crazy. And this has felt a little bit more of a snooze. You did have the one brief moment of Kamala Harris popping up and then she has faded away. You had Elizabeth Warren's good summer and then, you know, maybe slightly less good, but not yet bad fall. Um, but the, the mayor Pete thing in these early states is like, it's real as a political junkie. It's exciting. Uh, so just certainly something more to watch. One other thing that I'm keeping an eye on is in these New Hampshire polls. And again, there's not a ton of them. Um, but you have a couple polls that have Tulsi Gabbard in the kind of fifth place spot in New Hampshire, which again, she is the top of the list of yeah. someone that Democrats are like, oh, I would be disappointed if no, she won. Right. And she, and she's net unfavorable, you know, in the national, like in the national tracking. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a little hard to understand. I, tell me, tell me more how you feel about this, Margie. <laughs> Let's it's talk about your hard. feelings. Yeah, I'm not really. This is not one of my riskier things to say. It's just it's a little bit. It's a little bit harder to understand. So look, um, it's definitely she's not, she's not a fan favorite. <laughs> <laughs> not your cup of tea. That's okay. We don't have to like everybody. Uh, so let me let's talk about California then, because California. I mean, we we talk so much about Iowa and New Hampshire, and yet I feel like at least in 2016, I remember we spent months and months and months talking about Iowa, and then like as soon as Iowa happened. No one cared. Everyone was like, it's like on to the next thing. Um, So this is all going to go real quickly. Iowa, then New Hampshire, then South Carolina, Nevada. Like this stuff is going to, it's just going to move real fast. And so, you know, my question is, how much does Harris dropping out actually change the state of things in California. Was she going to win California anyways, uh, or not so much? Does this actually change anything? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, you know, we don't know the answer to that, right? You know, obviously, what happens in the Super Tuesday states is going to be impacted by what happens in the early voting states, and never mind what's happening right now in this kind of home stretch before voting begins. But, you know, California has 416 delegates on the table on on and so now the you know you you don't have a california elected official running in the way that you did before so you know so that that changes things and uh, you know on top of that you have texas is a super tuesday state north carolina is a super tuesday state massachusetts um all of those you know in virginia all of those have almost 100 or more than 100 delegates on the table. <laughs> you know, so you have a lot, you have a lot on the table, meaning that you have, can, you know, campaigns are going to have to decide, are they going to go to some of the bigger, more expensive states? Or are they going to try to um, set up 
an operation in one of the smaller states and have that state to themselves? What do they anticipate the other candidates doing? Um, what about the candidates who are not necessarily building field operations or doing more of a television um, a campaign? And these are the questions that people are now trying to figure out the answers to. Well, let's talk briefly about this general election, because we now have I think we have not really we, we talk a lot about the Trump versus Biden, Trump versus Warren, Trump versus Sanders. But now we've got a couple Trump versus Buttigieg matchups where it seems to me that he now has high enough national name ID that I feel comfortable looking at these numbers like previously. You know, it was all I always felt a little awkward looking at a number of Trump versus the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who maybe voters didn't know as well. But now that he's really he's been sitting atop the Iowa polls, his name ID is higher. If you look at the um, if you look at that that morning consult poll, I mean, it's it's not absurdly high. You still have about 18 percent of and I think this is Democratic primary voters who say they, they have still never heard of him. So it's not universal, but. I feel a little more comfortable looking at it. And it's still painting a pretty favorable picture at a national level for Democrats. You have, on average, Biden beating Trump by 9.9 points, Warren beating Trump by 7.3, Sanders beating Trump by 8.5, Buttigieg beating Trump by 4.0. The only one where Trump is winning is the national, again, and that's Emerson. And I believe Emerson uses the The mechanical mechanical Turk, Turk sample which we have talked about before, my yeah. deep, deep skepticism of that as a methodology. So still still tough times uh, for Trump looking at the general election. Uh, but when we come back from the break, we can talk a little bit more about his approval, impeachment, and more. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, we're back. And Trump's job approval still sitting pretty flat. Um, I mean, we really have to like zoom in on this chart to make it look like an interesting and bumpy trend line because it just hovers in the same 1.5 point range. Like all year it has. If you looked at this and you did not, you were living under a rock and you did not know what was happening and you said, okay, what do you think is going on? We <laughs> would not say, well, obviously, right around this time, it looks like there was some kind of impeachment or something because these numbers went, you know, did something wild and crazy that you, you know, something wild and crazy must have happened. You would not say that because the numbers over the last month or two are floating around in the same space as they have at other times. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I wonder 
and this is this is a, a an open request to any of the um, amazing super dorks that listen to our podcast. <laughs> of which we, I, I don't say that. I say that as that is like the highest praise I can offer. I would love to know <laughs> how much of the wobbliness, and that is the you know the, obviously the scientific term here. The, the, how much of the change in Trump's job approval in the re, RCP trend line is like was Rasmussen's like yeah <laughs> was Rasmussen included in the average this day? Um, yeah, like is that the only thing that's true? I mean, it. it it is just astounding to me how flat it has been as we come to the end of the year. Because 2017 and 2018, there was some change. I mean, 2017, he started off in the 44 range and ended his first year as president down in the like mid 30s. Like that was a real, there was real movement. And then 2018, you saw it kind of go the other direction. Um, but, you know, tank back down again with the government shutdown or not, not with the government shutdown. Oh yeah. With the government shutdown. Um, and now you've just got like, it's just sitting so flat that it's bizarre. But you know what else is pretty flat? The numbers around impeachment. So again, we have the 538 question uh, tracker where it splits it out by, do you support impeaching Trump? Do you support beginning the process versus do you, do you believe he should be impeached and removed? I am willing to say that at this point, I am like much less interested in the should we begin the process question. But the questions don't say anymore begin. They now are do you support or oppose impeachment? They don't say begin now because it's begun, right? So there's or something, you know, there's been a thing that's begun. So, yeah, so there's just it, no more dots this- appearing in that trend line. Yeah. Like that's why that one's not moving. So you almost don't even have to look at that one anymore. Well, they do still have questions there, but they now are include they don't they don't include the phrase begin. If they're still coded, you can go and look at the questions that they include in each model and they're coded begin or remove. And the begin ones don't use the word begin anymore. I mean, it's not because 538 is doing something wrong. It's just that's, you know, that's the questions have moved on a little bit. So, I don't know if that changing of the word begin changed how the, the how the these numbers look that because we moved from saying begin to saying support or oppose the impeachment process, um, that that's made the numbers soften a little bit. But at any rate, they have now widened just a hair than where both the begin and the not begin, the impeach and remove model have widened just a teeny tiny, teeny tiny bit, but it's still basically where it's been for the the last couple weeks. Yeah, I mean, that's why I think the more important and interesting number is the impeach and remove number. Because at this point, I mean, the horse is out of the barn, the process is happening, it is what it is. And now... We've got testimony from different witnesses. It's now moved over to House Judiciary as of today with people sort of presenting testimony on what they think an impeachable offense ought to be, sort of bringing in some legal scholars. So we've moved into the phase where I feel much more uh, I'm much more interested in looking at that number because the American people have had, you know, networks doing wall to wall coverage during the day of, of this. This is not something where people are just sort of going, oh, you know. Uh, well, we, we still have more information to learn. I mean, there may still be more information that the public wants to learn, of course, but a lot of information is out there. And so I, I to me, that that I'm glad that 538 lets you separate the numbers, but I'm much more interested in seeing, is there any movement in support or don't support impeach or impeach and remove? And you still have 
a plurality, according to 538, 47.4% say they support impeach or impeach and remove. 44% say they don't support it. Um, that is, again, it's it's been pretty flat. And so whether you think that that flatness is good or bad, uh, I think depends, you know, <laughs> glass half full, glass half empty. If you... If you are a Democrat and you want to look on the bright side, you can say, well, hey, we've presented all of this information and more people, you know, still want to impeach him than don't. And Republicans can look at those numbers and say, you guys have pulled out your best witnesses. You've given it your best shot. You're rushing the process. And so you're not really trying to bring in the Mulvaney's and the Giuliani's of the world. And short of that, this isn't going anywhere. So if you really feel like you want to impeach a president with less than 50% support, knock yourselves out. But I think both sides can look at this and see good news for themselves in this entirely flat trend line. Yeah. I mean, you know, YouGov and economists ask some questions that dig a little bit deeper um, than just support, you know, support or oppose the process or impeach and remove. And I think they found some interesting things. I mean, obviously some predictable responses by party, but I thought that they had an interesting, pretty robust series of questions. We don't even have them all here in the script. I mean, they actually asked about all the individual witnesses and whether people watch them and what, how whether they thought they were telling the truth. I mean, they really kind of dug deep. Um, but it, they get big picture and then they get granular on impeachment. So the big pic, so some big picture questions. How much does it matter to you if a foreign country interferes in U.S. elections? And two-thirds say it matters to them a lot. And even a majority of Republicans say that it matters a lot. Um, then it's you get a different response. Do you believe that Russia interfered with the 16 presidential election? Then you have only about a third of Republicans say yes. But it's still striking that number being a third given it is at odds with what Trump says and uh and what uh you know some of the Trump supporters have said um then they have a question do you believe that Ukraine interfered with the 2016 presidential election and you have a pretty high not sure you have about a third who aren't sure uh more say no than say yes so you know about two to one um but there's some actually some consistency here by party with about a quarter of Republicans say yes and about 21% of Democrats say yes. What did you make of that? Yeah. So my assumption is that Republicans are responding – is that part of the reason why Democrats and Republicans' numbers look the same is a lot of respondents are giving the answer they would give if it said Russia. So – you have like if you really follow this stuff closely, you know that Trump and some of his allies have been really talking up the idea that actually the Ukraine like Ukraine interfered in the election because either the conspiracy theory debunked stuff about CrowdStrike, the idea that like somehow Ukraine has Hillary Clinton's server, which is not true, or you're trying to count as interference. The fact that there were some Ukrainian officials who like wrote an op-ed saying they didn't like Trump, which if we're calling that interference, we are defining interference in a wildly overbroad way, in my I, I, I view. I suspect, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it could just be just general confusion. Yeah. So like, I think everybody's everybody's trying to interfere. Who knows? Yeah. You know? And so think- this is where I think for Republicans, you've got 51% of Republicans who are saying no to this, even though it's something Trump is very vocally saying yes to, because they're just hearing... Did did foreign country X interfere in our election? And they're they're now kind of conditioned to think like, 
this is all kind of a, like weird. It's a hoax. Like, no, get this out of my face. And then Democrats, you know, 48% say no. And I don't think it's because they think there was an election interference. We know that the Democrats very overwhelmingly, when you ask questions about things like Russia, will say, yes, we believe Russia interfered in the election. So it's, it's, I think you're right that it's this confusion over people not really knowing that much. And so there's a mix of people in both parties giving questions, giving responses like they might give if you were asking about Russia because they just haven't disentangled these two stories quite enough. And so it leads to a crosstab where it's right. like, hey, bipartisan agreement. Ukraine did not interfere in the election. Question, Question mark. mark. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, but the other thing, if you look at the aggregate of all of these questions, Democrats, I mean, this question aside, are pretty united. They believe it's, you know, it's it's matters to them a lot. If there's been interference, there has been interference. They feel the interference has made a difference in the election. They feel Trump was purposely trying to withhold military aid. Um, they believe that that's impeachable if it's true that happened, that it's not appropriate for him to tweet against witnesses while they're testifying. Like you go through the whole list from the broad to the very specific and Democrats are like, yep, 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 yep. Um, and they're very consistently as a party, you know, where they are on that. While you have Republicans, depending on how the question is asked, not necessarily in agreement with what the president's been saying. There were also questions in this poll about crowd strike, too. I mean, there's, you know, it, it goes, as I said, quite in depth that you have Democrats more likely to be watching and paying attention than Republicans. Democrats are following the news more closely on impeachment. So that could have something to do with it. But overall, Republicans are not uniformly on board with the various points that have come from Trump and his closest supporters. Yes. Um, And I think the, you know, the fact that when, do you think it's appropriate or inappropriate for Donald Trump to tweet against witnesses in the impeachment hearings while they were testifying? You know, 45% of Republicans say appropriate, but normally you find 80 some percent of Republicans agreeing with Trump or supporting what he said. And this is, I mean, the question includes Trump's name. It's not just a vague esoteric. It's like, it is by including Trump's name, I would almost think that would like goose the Republican number higher. The fact that it's still under 50 percent, I think, um, is is notable. And you did have yep. even like, let's take, for instance, someone who became a real lightning rod during this whole process, Elise Stefanik, who now a lot more people know her name than perhaps knew it, but knew it two weeks ago because of the very prominent role she took in the hearing. Even she sort of coming out as an ally of, of Jordan and sort of an antagonist of Schiff and, and what have you, sort of aligning herself with that crew. The day when Trump was tweeting out stuff during the hearing, she was asked, well, what do you think about that? And she gave the, no, I don't think that's right. So there are even some of the folks that are the most kind of gung-ho defending Trump in this process who are, lead, you know, in Congress were even like, I don't know. So... I guess that in some ways that means that makes me a little less surprised that you don't get above 50 percent with Republicans. But it's also just sort of refreshing. I don't like the idea of there being a cult of personality around anyone. The idea that any question involving Trump would make 90 percent of Democrats say and 90 percent of Republicans say, yeah, it's just like unhealthy for the country. So, uh there we go. There's my glass half full. Look at this question cross tab. Well, how, then let's see you take a stab at glass half full on what was making the rounds <laughs> this past week. Oh. People were going bananas on this question, which 
which Republican president was better, Abraham Lincoln or Donald Trump? And 53% of Republicans said Trump and 47% of Republicans said Lincoln. Tell me, what do Republicans and Republican pollsters think of this question and the conversation around this question, why people answer the way they did, etc.? I don't know. I don't even know where to start. I mean, it's uh, my best explanation is that Trump is because he is currently president and he is someone that a lot of Republicans currently like and they therefore have a very personal present experience of the Trump era that they appear to like. That could be answer A. Answer B is they see this question and they're like, I am being trolled. And so I am right. going to troll right back. This is the the at comfortably smug response. Sure. But <laughs> what about in the Trump versus Reagan, though? Because that you would think would not they would not feel like they are being trolled. And there you have 59 percent, say, Reagan and, of Republicans and 41 percent of Republicans said Trump. And that, I think, lends more credence to the it's about the personal uh, temporal connection, right? That Lincoln, you read amazing things about him in history books. You know that he was an unbelievably critical figure in uh, in our country's history, but you are making a decision based on who you know and who you are have experience with. And so, you know, Reagan having been a more uh, present figure in the modern day Republican Party, although that's a whole other debate where, you know, Listen to my next podcast where Jonah Goldberg and I rip our hair out for 60 minutes. But like this, to me, the fact that that Reagan beats Trump, but Lincoln doesn't, my only explanation is that it is about a a time frame factor. That's like, that's all I've got for you. (laughs) The alternatives are too depressing to think about. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's take a break. And then Kristen will talk a little bit about... The very calm, soothing election that's happening in the UK right now. Okay, we're back. And so you wanted to talk about the poll of polls, Mr. P, what is happening in the UK? So in the UK, ever since uh, Theresa May stepped down and Boris Johnson uh, became the prime minister, conservatives have had a pretty good run of it. Um, The poll of the poll of polls, which is the uh, the way they, that's their sort of word for polling average over in Europe, which I kind of like. I would like to adopt that here. I would also like Republicans and Democrats to switch their party color, even though red's my favorite color, because conservative parties should be blue. Forget it. But I know, I fight this battle all the time and I'm never going to win. So <laughs> the conservatives, like their trend line has gone from they were winning about 20% of the vote up to they're winning 43% of the vote. Uh, nowadays. So looking pretty good. But Labour has also had a slight uptick in their support going from about uh, just under 25% up to about 33% right now. This has come at the expense of the Lib Dems, um, a party who uh, I think like two or three elections ago when Nick Clegg was uh, was mm-hmm. the leader of the party did quite well. Nick Clegg right. is now running uh, global public policy stuff for Facebook. He's no longer in British politics. Lib Dems, they had been doing well back in the summer, but now are down only at 13%. So they appear to be much less of a factor. And you also had a party, the Brexit party, which isn't listed here in this chart. I, I wonder if they were trying to list them as like, 
I'm, I'm curious why they, they don't it's here in this chart. But but I know that they are the Brexit party. Oh, BP. BP. 3%. That's who they are. Yeah, that they had been way, way up in the mix. And they have since come out since Boris Johnson became the leader of the conservatives. Boris Johnson is running on a get Brexit done message in the debates like this is all he says get brexit done get you could ask him like what's the weather outside he's like get brexit done and you can see the appeal of this message one if you were a leave voter if you like brexit you want to get brexit done and if you are a remain voter but you've sort of resigned yourself to the fact that some form of brexit is going to happen you can you might like the idea of get Brexit done just as a like, can we please get this over with and get this has dominated our national agenda for three plus years. We can't keep going on like this. Let's just get a deal done and move on so that we don't wind up with a hard Brexit or some kind of uh, of, of other situation. So the Brexit party itself, which had been quite popular, once Theresa May stepped down and Boris Johnson came uh, took over the party, they sort of said, look, we're not going to fight in this election anymore because or in any seats where we might potentially spoil things for the conservatives, any of these like swing seats, we we don't want to be a spoiler party. So we're going to try to be strategic. Um, and and this is, I think, really helping the conservatives. You know, YouGov, the, the British polls are, were notoriously bad, uh, have really messed up in the last couple of elections. But last time around, the, the one thing that really did predict that you were going to have this hung parliament, that it was not going to turn out as well for Theresa May as was expected, was YouGov's um, MRP, uh, which is, without diving too deeply into it, is essentially a way for folks to make projections about individual seats or individual districts without needing to have polled in them. You sort of make inferences about districts based on other information you know about them and then looking at, at what you've got in your in your data set, you can you make these projections. YouGov projects that uh, there will be a conservative majority and by a long shot, um, the conservatives will pick up over 350 seats, um, that Labour will only get 211, um, that you will have uh, the Scottish National Party, which what's valuable about this, by the way, is that Scottish National Party only comes in about 3% in the overall polls, but they wind up picking up 43 seats because of the way things are all divided. So this is this is the value of looking at it on a seat-by-seat -seat basis. Um, and then uh, there's another sort of analysis that, that I'll jump to. that The, the economists, uh, there, there's a take here from uh, G. Elliot Morris, who he's a data journalist at The Economist. And he really finds that you are going to see a swing away from labor in the types of seats where people said, look, I like Brexit, but I'm also a labor voter. This is your kind of classic like Trump Democrat, like the British version of a Trump Democrat is who these people are. And this is really showing that like they are, if you're a Trump Democrat, if the equivalent is a leave labor voter in the UK, is leave Trumping labor and pushing them into the hands of get Brexit done Boris. Um, that seems to be what this analysis is suggesting. Last but not least, you have um, an analysis by uh, BMG Research. They ask people, are you going to do tactical voting? So like here in the U.S., there's not really tactical voting per se. People might, for tactical reasons, opt not to vote for a third party candidate. Like maybe you really love Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, but you wanted to tactically vote for Clinton because you didn't want to spoil the election one way or another. But, but generally in the U.S., we don't really talk about tactical voting 
that much, but it is a much bigger thing in a society where you have a lot of different parties, all of which are actually competitive. Um, and they found that this time around 30% of the public says, I'm going to vote for the best positioned party or candidate to keep out another party or candidate I dislike. Um, now, 51% say, I'm going to vote for the person I like the best, but that is a really high proportion of people saying, I am not voting for who I like the best. I am voting for the party that I think is going to be able to keep out the people I don't like, which right. sort of suggests you're going to see more of just two-party voting. Right. I mean, obviously, it, it could very well be different there. But sometimes, you know, we've asked this question, or polling outlets will ask this question uh, here, like, are you voting? It's a little bit different, but are you voting for, you know, a Senate candidate because you want to check and balance on the president and you want majority control to do this or that? And we've asked those questions. Obviously, people want to know the answers to these questions. But are people res really, truly responding in an honest way? Or do they fully understand the question? Or are they saying, well, it sounds like that's a thing I want to do, but they ultimately don't do it that way. You know, it varies in some states or a straight ticket vote. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that layers on this that make that less of a straightforward question that people can respond in a way that's predictive and, and true. Um, but it's but it's still interesting. I mean, they have asked the same question before and it's now going up. So, you know, over time, it's changing. Well, we'll know next week the election is going to happen on the 12th. So I think we are not going to tape another show before the election. Um, but uh, so we may check in on this and see if there's any like late movement in the polls, because that's obviously really important too. I mean, one of the theories about why the polling was so wrong on Brexit was like, was there late movement that wasn't captured by the poll? So we'll, we'll keep an eye on this and, and update you next week. But this was our, our sort of deep dive into what's going on and why the conservatives seem poised to do quite well uh, on Bregsmas, I think, is is what I saw the Daily Mail is calling it. The Daily Mail that I, I read as my – the Daily Mail UK edition, which I read as my very first news source in the morning. Judge away. Judge away, friends. Um, I – you just like to ease into it. I get it. I, I want to see if Duchess Kate has worn anything interesting in the last 24 hours. No, I have my good. priorities, that's guys. Good. I have my priorities. Um, well, let's wrap up by talking about some happy holiday stuff. So we have a poll here um, coming to us from Axios. Uh, they are reporting on a poll yeah. about Giving Tuesday, what causes Americans support? And they break it out by uh, generation. And I think this is really interesting. You have baby boomers who the things they tend to support human services and religion. What are we calling human services? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Does that mean like direct services like soup kitchens? Is that what that means? I wonder that that, human services? that might mean what it is. And I, I would assume. But how is that different from society benefit? Yeah, I don't totally get the codes here. Um, it's This is always tough. It's always tough to ask because you can get very specific. It's like kind of a most important issue type question. You can be very broad and then who knows? You could be very specific and then you need a thousand different answer categories. It, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard question, but it does, it does tell you something like health is health, like a hospital or a specific disease organization probably, but it, it could include... You know, it could include a lot more than that, too. Education could mean the school you went to or the school your kids go to. Yeah. And I mean, not to throw like a political bomb into it, but, you know, are if somebody makes a contribution to Planned Parenthood, is that coded as health or is that coded as 
does society you know, benefit? Society, you know, or like, uh, or, or, right. you know, how to, how to that get code? So, you know, there's all sorts of, of things in here, but for millennials, the number one thing they support education. I wonder if that's like millennials, we're finally getting to the point where we can afford to like write checks back to our alma mater. <laughs> Right. uh, Or is it like for the PTA of where your kids go to school? Yeah, exactly. Because Gen X as well, the top uh, top cause is education. Um, Particularly popular among the youngs, environment and animals as well. That comes in um, up there pretty high among Gen Z as the causes they have supported in the last year. Uh, My Giving Tuesday uh, cause was Kyra's Rescue, the rescue that uh, brought me my Wally. Uh, they are, oh, yeah, that's they, good. they have, I'm not sure if two years ago they were officially registered as a 501c3, but they are now. Um, they are. I checked it out. <laughs> are you are you fully funding Kyra's rescue super pack? <laughs> uh, uh, for sure. I can. I will max out. Um, so that yeah. I mean, it's this organization. They you know they they bring golden retrievers over who have been who need homes who have been who are left in or stray and goldens are so sweet. They're really bad as stray animals. Um, so help help bring these goldens over from Turkey. Uh, they need your love. That was that was a cause I was happy to support because Wally brings me so much joy every day. Oh, well, he brings the internet joy, which is where the internet really comes in handy as animals. Now, I instead of like key findings, I just want to quibble because my key finding is I'm a little mad at the people who picked this number five song as their most annoying Christmas song. So this is like most annoying Christmas song, which is, you know, I, I don't, I'm not really sure. I mean, I get, I get why do they know it's Christmas by Band-Aid is number two. That's for sure. I could see why that's on the list. I don't think I've heard this wizard song. I wish it could be Christmas every day. This is done by, um, you know, the it's like a mobile phone company. Oh, Huawei. UK. Yeah, so guys. Yeah, is this UK? Is this UK or is this US or is this worldwide? Um, At any rate. I, feel I like cannot I imagine Huawei UK. would have done a survey in the United States considering that we don't let them come here because because it's China. And security. Oh, this is the UK. This is the UK. So that's why we don't know like what one of these the songs are. <laughs> All right. But Last Christmas by Wham is a great song. And... It should not be number five of most annoying. It should be top five of best. Did you go see the Amelia Clark, Henry Golding film based on this song? Quite literally. No. What? No. Oh, my gosh. I'm about to blow your mind. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I still haven't watched the Tom Hardy polling movie, which I definitely still need to do. (laughs) Okay. No. Okay. So just listeners, if you have still not seen Last Christmas – and you don't want it spoiled, turn off the podcast. Although the internet has probably already spoiled this it for is all you. O- this is over now anyway. You're not going to miss much. Yeah, so just, Margie, yeah. I'm going to spoil this for you because I, I want to save you from this. <laughs> so this is a, is a rom- it was billed as like a holiday, romantic, you know, whatever, starring the girl who plays Mother of Dragons on Game of Thrones Henry Golding right. from Crazy Rich Asians. I was like, this has all sorts of things about it that oh, I love. Oh, yes, I've seen this. Right, I've seen the And ads apparently that, it is very, there's tons of George Michael music in the movie, right? So I'm like, selling it. You're, you're loving this, what I'm describing yes. to you. Right. Okay, I'm going to yes. tell you the plot twist because apparently everybody who sees this movie like hates this movie because of the plot twist. So throughout okay. the course of the movie, uh, Amelia Clark's character is like talking to Henry Golding, but he's kind of weird. He doesn't have a cell phone and like 
she can never go to his house or like there's just strange stuff about him this whole time. And you also keep hearing that she had like some kind of medical episode the year before. And so she's working at a Christmas store, but she's like kind of off and she's still dealing with like the trauma of like she had this health issue. It turns out the twist is that last Christmas, Henry Golding's character died in a bike accident and gave her his heart. Oh, come on. <laughs> so you can see. I'm going to throw my microphone. Why out the so window. many people That's were terrible. like, I'm going to go see this Christmas movie about romance and about <laughs> George Michael music. And then we're like, what is actually occurring here? Are you kidding me? She's oh, hallucinating so the ghost of her organ donor. So that's terrible. There you go. Oh, well, I don't really like rom coms or Christmas movies, but I do love George Michael. But that would, alone would not have been enough for me to go see this. So movie. I have so I have really spared you because there were some ingredients spared. in there that could have really dragged you into that theater, and so <laughs> I just wanted you to know. Before Definitely you not went making. Ahead. Do you know how hard it is to get in the theater when you have two small kids? Like it. I saw Frozen 2, and I don't even remember what was the thing before that. Like, it's a, like there was no way I was going to have to, I was going to make it to see, you know, a Christmas movie in the next two weeks. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to be on the trend line. This, yes, normally, this is you know, so we exciting. We don't always say it, but this week, people should listen, because I'll be on in a more, like, abbreviated, you know, measured, conservative conversation. I'm, like, less freewheeling on the trend line, but... It was very fun to be on and be interviewed by you on your show. It was fantastic. Yeah. So if you want, uh, re- really, if you're a pollsters listener already, you know, I-, I would, I want you to listen to the trend line because it's, it's, I-, I want everybody to. Um, but it'll be, I-, I think you'll find it particularly amusing to see Margie and I in like this new, slightly more formal format. I don't know. I mean, the trend line's not like. Thanks for having me. Thanks yeah. for having me on your show. Uh, I also have on my, my other guest this week is Patrick Ruffini. So it's too like, it's the friends and family episode of the trend yeah, line, really. Totally. Totally. Okay. Well, where can people find us? You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Mara and at K Soltis Anderson. And you can find us at www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.